This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and normally my regular co-host, Rachel Gordon, is unable to be with us today. She unfortunately is busy. Um, but I've got a very exciting episode, a new series that, uh, we're premiering here on ContraZoom, uh, we're calling Make Remake. So the purpose of this format is to analyze two films, an original and a remake, and not necessarily come to the conclusion which one is better and why is this one better or worse or things like that. Uh, but more so to accurately compare What's the reasoning behind doing a remake? You do a remake for multiple reasons, whether it's been a long time and you want to reboot it, or the film was in a different language, or you just want to have a new and interesting take on it. There's all sorts of examples of different remade films that kind of do it that way, whether it's changing genres or languages, things like that. So for the very first episode, we're looking at uh, two very iconic films. The first one being Seven Samurai, which came out in 1954, directed by Akira Kurosawa, which is a very famous Japanese movie. And then it was made only a few short years later in 1960, called The Magnificent Seven, directed by John Sturges, which is very different in that it's a classic American restaurant. Now, I said that Rachel Gordon is not here this evening with me. Uh, instead, I have a very capable fill-in in my fiance Stephanie Pryor. Now, Stephanie watches a lot of movies with me already, and we usually have very lively film debates and conversations, and she watched both of these with me and has a very good handle on, on what both of these films are about. So, welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, Dakota. It's your first time on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Good. Um, I think the fun thing is normally I record these over Skype and I'm not in the same room, but for once I'm sharing a microphone. Yeah, you're going to have to move over for once. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so for those people that don't know what these films are about, the plots are nearly identical that... Uh, a village is in peril because bandits are coming to steal all of their crops at the end of the farming season. You have these poor rural farmers who all live together and farm. It's a small farming community. Uh, and instead of just giving all of their crops up, they decide to hire help. And in The Seven Samurai, this takes place in feudal Japan, so they hire as the title says, Seven Samurai to protect them from the village of uh, the band- the incoming bandits. The Magnificent Seven alters this formula very slightly in that these are Mexican farmers that live on the Texas-Mexico border, and they hire seven cowboys to come and help them. Um, overall, I would say the plots are pretty identical. Would, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, there's just minor tweaks, but it's essentially the same plot. It, it really is. So, you know, even even down to how most of the characters end up, uh, their outcomes, whether they live or die or things like that, it's pretty similar. They change some things around a little bit, which we are going to go more in depth. But, you know, story arc as far as the beginning, middle and end are pretty identical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
which is interesting because I, I, I think, you know, most of the time you, you have a film like that where it just copies it beat, per, beat by beat. It doesn't work out. There, there's so many examples of that not working. But I think the director of The Magnificent Seven, John Sturgis, was such a big fan of what Kurosawa was doing. And you had uh, Ewell Brenner, who was the real driving force behind this being remade into an English one that had such high regard for the original that they wanted to make sure that they were doing it right that this wasn't some you know studio knockoff where they can just you know take a easily written plot outline that they know how it's going to go and just you know throw it together and because at the time westerns were so dime a dozen in the 60s and 70s westerns were the most predominant genre so it was so easy to just make any film into a western oh just you know throw some horses and guys in cowboy hats and boom you got yourself a western yeah. um later all you need to do is include clint eastwood in a movie and it became a western <laughs> yeah um so it's, it's interesting so i think in that sense we're talking how it's so much alike i think the best place to start is how these movies are different um because while they are similar enough we are going to talk about some similarities afterwards there's a, quite a lot that is different um i think one of the biggest things in this is um the magnificent seven has two of the seven characters um one of them that is this uh drunken guy who uh, is played by Tashiro Mifune Kakuchio I hope I'm saying that right um who is who ends up being one of the lead characters Tashiro Mifune is one of the most famous Japanese actors ever and is in all is in a whole bunch of Kurosawa movies um who plays this almost like a village idiot drunk character who seems to be pretty unreliable uh when you're introduced to him uh and then there's also this uh young man whose name is uh katsushiro who is played by kokimer uh who is this very young man who wants to become a samurai and so is basically following uh these older men around like a little puppy dog because he wants to be a samurai and wants to learn from these guys and so these are two very different characters uh both of which are used to comedic effect you know you have the town drunk fool character and then you have the naivety innocence of uh of a character who who's basically almost like the the surrogate for the audience where as he learns things um so does the audience, which is a pretty common trait in most movies. But then in The Magnificent Seven, these two characters are combined. So you have uh, the young man and the drunk, who uh, whose name is Chico, and he's played by Horst Buckholtz. Uh, and that's kind of combined together, which means that they are able to create a new character that was played by Robert Vaughn, uh, who played a character named Lee, who, um, who we're not really going to talk about, but his, his character, there isn't really much of a comparable to him, uh, to the magnificent seven, uh, to the seven samurai version. So saying all those things, did you feel there was either an advantage or disadvantage from Magnificent Seven combining them? Or was there one that kind of worked a little bit better plot-wise? Um, well, I preferred The Seventh Samurai having them as two separate characters because I found that combining them, you kind of lost some nuances and some special, some, some special times that both characters had uh, separately, so in Seven Samurai, with the, the this kind of drunk wild card character, you know he while he seemed crazy on the outside, 
he often had ideas that drove the plot and and kind of seemed the most logical that no one really thought about. And he kind of took them outside the box of their logical thinking. And so it kind of was this great juxtaposition of how he seemed on the outside as this kind of wild, crazy guy. But he he had, you know, a torn past and he was actually almost using that to cover what he was feeling. He was actually quite smart. So that's why I like them separate because the young naivety, naivete of the other character doesn't really combine with this smart, knowledgeable, crazy guy. I liked how he was separate to show, you know, he was young. He wanted to be this great samurai like the rest of them, but he was torn between this, this village girl that he actually kind of fell in love with halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because in the seven samurai, you know, uh, this main, this character, uh, is, is one of the main ones because it's played by one of Japan's biggest actors. So, um, uh, his name was, uh, Kikuchio, uh, was one of the main characters, but he, he was up there with an, the other one who is named Kembe. Uh, so the two of them kind of had this sort of yin and yang, uh, persona where, where Kembe was more of the, the straightforward, uh, understanding character, very mentorly, but also, understood what the cost of violence was that was if if they were to undertake this that you don't kill lightly and so they kind of had this nice opposite ways of looking at things and they butted heads at times but in the end they understood that by working together even though they had different ways of accomplishing the same goals they work quite well together uh and so he was the more nuanced and, and lower key personality of them but you know he st- he didn't have to be yelling it in your face to really have that respect and gravitas that that character had uh and then kind of compared to the magnificent seven version where it was uh yule brenner and steve mcqueen's characters uh who sort of shared that dual leadership and it was more of a one-upsmanship between the two of them. And they both were, were fairly similar. Um, Steve McQueen was a slightly bit more of the wild card character where Yul Brenner was more of the straight laced one, but they were, you know, they were still pretty even keel as far as what they were doing there. Theirs was more of a macho one-upism mm-hmm. compared to different ideologies of you know, being playing yourself the fool where you can keep your enemy on their toes that uh, Tashira Mifune's character was. Yeah, I thought that Yul Brenner's and Steve McQueen's characters were almost so similar that they could have been combined to be one character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side in The Magnificent Seven, how they combined it to play the young, drunken character of Chico, um, it almost was done in that his you know, drunken outbursts were done to show his naivete. Um, Mm. whereas, you know, they didn't, it almost seems it's, it's by talking about it, it sounds like it was used as a bit of a crutch, but like, I think they did a good enough job where it didn't seem that way. It was really only sort of one scene, uh, in the bar when he wants to join the magnificent seven group, which at that time there obviously wasn't 
seven of them and he kind of lashes out to them because he gets too drunk and he tries to show that he's the better sharpshooter than uh, I believe it was uh, Yul Brenner's character and he takes his gun out and you know ends up falling over and passing out and and things like that so it's that was really the only scene where they kind of showed the drunken character Mm -hmm. to that but other than that the the rest of it sort of remained the same as far as the the puppy dog wanting to follow along and not knowing what to do and then both of the young men um sort of have love interests in the village Mm -hmm. um Another big difference between the two of them was the villain in Magnificent Seven, his name was Calvera, was played by Eli Wallach, who is a very famous actor uh, who usually plays bad guys. Um, and then compared to the Seven Samurai, while they did kind of have you know, one or two leaders, it was very much like a, a faceless horde of bandits. Uh, you know, some of them get speaking times, but they're pretty much just these brutes that ride in with, you know, their weapons, steal and ride out sort of thing and laugh maniacally as they're riding away. Uh, there wasn't really a face to them. So you kind of get this interesting contrast with, with how that sort of portrayed um, where I guess you kind of get to sympathize with the heroes a bit more in Magnificent Seven because you understand more who they're who they're facing, what they're up against. Uh, I don't know. Did that sort of did did that sort of feel the same way? Where you kind of understood more of the heroes or fear the villain? I guess. Yeah, I think this is one of the areas that I think the Magnificent Seven uh, did it maybe a little bit better. Whereas you actually could have a better sense of good and evil. You knew what the heroes were fighting for and why they were fighting this villain. Whereas in Seven Samurai, you knew they were bad guys, but you didn't really have any relationship with them. So you were kind of just, you were cheering for the Seven Samurai and the farmers because, you know, you're dropped into this this scenario and you know that they're fighting against these bad guys, you know. So you, you want them to win, but in Magnificent Seven... You ha- there's a face, there's someone, you have an emotional feeling and an attachment to to the farmers, and you have a reaction to, to the bad guy, so you know why they're fighting, and you, and you have a personal investment, almost, mm-hmm. in wanting them to win. Yeah. Uh, he it, it does, in The Magnificent Seven, it does border almost at parody at times, where, <laughs> like, you know, the... Calvera will come in and, you know, ask for food and drink and cigars and things like that and steal from the villagers while pretending to be overly nice. And then you have all of his henchmen in the back just laughing hysterically at, oh, look at that. He's pretending to be nice to the poor villagers. Ha ha ha. We're going to come and kill you in a month sort of thing in a, in a threatening way where like that's almost a bit of a byproduct of the the movie showing its age a little bit where if that was done a little more straight laced, that might yeah. have kept the film a little more on the the edgier, scarier yeah. side of things. He definitely wasn't a menacing uh, villain. You knew he was bad and what he was doing there, but it, it didn't give the same scary, spooky feeling. It also didn't help that he was doing a terrible Spanish accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But like, by and large, I think Wallach still did a pretty good job of, you know, being menacing enough. I think it's more of the film trying to maintain some sort of lightheartedness. Yeah. 
because otherwise it would have veered into too dark territory. I'm going to look up what the rating is. Obviously, back then, ratings were different. Um, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing what the, the rating is. But like back then, every movie was PG. <laughs> like there really was no difference between ratings. And I, I'm not even seeing a, a proper rating. Yeah, it was rated PG. So it's, so that's what it is. But that's that's more of a product of the, the Hollywood studio system where they're still kind of coming out of the, the Hayes Code where the Hayes Code wasn't in effect um, as far as what you could and could not show. But the remnants of that was still being in place of the studio system. And, and that was really the only way for movies to be made. Uh, it's not like today where you have independent movies. That that didn't exist back then, back in 1960. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Um, and that's almost, you know, that kind of veers in, into another point where despite The Magnificent Seven being this much more lighthearted film... Um, I actually found Seven Samurai overall was funnier, specifically to Shiro Mifune, who, you know, I was reading about it, really modeled his character after being animal-like, and he kind of really brings this animalistic nature to himself where he's wildly unpredictable and really didn't mind making an ass of himself to the point where you're laughing hysterically and everyone in the scene is laughing hysterically, and it really kind of plays out nicely because of that. Yeah, I did find that it was a little bit more funny at times. Just, I think they had more of a camaraderie, too, amongst themselves. The six samurai with the seventh kind of crazy one. Well, he technically, he was he was the samurai. They didn't believe he was. No, it was no, no. the kid I'm just that wasn't that the real the, samurai. The six of, oh, yeah, yeah, the, six yeah, yeah. the, of the seven six samurai of yeah. were kind of in on this joke on, on this animalistic samurai but uh, again i i think he was one of the smartest ones so i think he was actually in on the joke mm-hmm. and and there was a pretty funny scene early on when they're still assembling the team where he's trying to say that he comes from a lineage of samurais and he pulls out his family scroll which is a family tree basically and they realize that he had stolen it from another <laughs> family and the name on it uh which up until then, they kept laughing every time he would introduce himself. Uh, Kikuchio is actually a girl's name. Um, it's a combination of names. I don't have it in front of me, but it's a combination of two different girls' names put together. And so they kept laughing at that. And then when they were looking at the family scroll, it says based on his birth date, he should be like a 12-year-old girl or something. And so they obviously know that he's lying and, and all this sort of stuff. So there's a really good uh, sense of hilarity. And that's sort of where like his sort of drunken antics sort of come into play where they just – brush that off as oh you stole this you found this probably in the trash or you stole this from someone when you were drunk and things like that um so it was kind of a, an interesting moment um in seven Sam- magnificent seven while lighthearted doesn't have as many real punch lines per se yeah it was it was like a, a light-hearted family adventure movie so you know there's fun moments but it's not necessarily funny mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so yeah, those are some, I think, some of the bigger differences. Uh, both, you know, I think both movies handle them really well. Their, their differences and that's kind of sets them apart. Um, 
one of the other interesting things, just kind of a small little note, is that uh, Seven Samurai is about a three-hour movie. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't feel like it. Uh, if it didn't it feel like a three-hour, three it was almost three and a half. Okay, yeah. it was almost three and a half-hour movie, but it doesn't really feel like that because I think the action flows along in a nice, uh, easy, digestible manner. Um, and so it really spends, you know, the first half of the movie just introducing the characters. Every single character that gets introduced gets at least 15, 20 minutes of introductory and back and backstory. Whereas, uh, do you know how long Magnus 7 was? Two hours. Two hour movie. They start out that way with a couple of the main characters when you're introduced to Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen and then the first, you know, one or two after that. Yeah. And then it's just like, all right, let's get this train going. They kind of fall like dominoes after that. Once you get to know their two characters, they just, the rest of them almost just fall mm-hmm. into place. Where I think that might have benefited from a bit of a longer running time. Who knows? There might be a version of this film Extended that exists. Yeah. yeah, that's two and a half, three hours. But a lot of these older movies, they would just get rid of the film um, mm-hmm. if it wasn't being used. Uh, there wasn't such a thing as an extended cut. They, there wasn't a DVD release where they can add on an extra hour of deleted scenes and things like that, like the Lord of the Rings movies or whatever. Um, so I think if there was a longer version of this, it's probably lost. But I would be very interested to see what they would have done because I think when they did develop the characters, it was done really well. Yeah. Um, all right. Now on that note, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about some similarities between these movies. Before we were talking about how these two classic movies were different uh, in making themselves their own individual unique movies, we're going to talk a little bit about how these movies are pretty similar. Uh, I think one of the biggest things is what an important role music played for both of these movies. Um, during the break, I was playing the theme for The Magnificent Seven, which as soon as you kind of hear those opening notes, it's just so familiar sounding. I'm sure without seeing this movie, most people have heard this music, whether it's at award shows or montages, or you, I'm sure it's even used in commercials and we don't even realize it. It is such an iconic theme song that it's just instantly recognizable. And that's really a big key to most Westerns. You, you think of stuff like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and, and those spaghetti Western music. Um, that uh, Ennio Morricone's scores were just such an important part. And, that, and Hollywood music has always been really key to it, but it really kind of helped make this movie what it was and make you feel familiar. I think that's part of the reason why this is a bit of a lighthearted movie, because hearing a recognizable theme instantly makes you feel familiar and yeah. happy about it. Yeah. Um, I know you had never seen the muse, this movie before. Uh, oh, no, you had seen the movie once. No, 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 you had? Okay. You hadn't seen the movie before. Uh, but, you know, replaying the music, it, it's just so instantly recognizable, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. 
and the fact that it comes up several times throughout the movie, much, much like how all movie scores really do. They have a, what's called a theme and then replay the theme in different either, uh, chords or with different instruments. Mm-hmm. So that way it kind of gives you that reoccurring familiarity, especially in, in movies where there is a dis, a designated hero. There'll be a usually a hero's theme or a villain's theme. And every time that person is on screen, they'll subtly play it. So yeah. that way you kind of feel like Star Wars, I think does the best. Yeah, that, that's probably, you know, the most obvious example you think of when you think of Star Wars. Just by even saying those words, you can kind of hear John Williams. Yeah, you can hear John Williams music. It's just in your head, so ingrained there. Mm -hmm. That's also by the product of the fact that they've had, you know, 20 movies now (laughs) where they can use the exact same music over and over again, where they still use, uh, the Emperor's March in the new versions. Um, anytime they kind of have this ominous feeling of what is Darth Vader up to, even though he's not in these movies. And even though music is completely different elsewhere on the world, I think it played a very important part to the Seven Samurai. They didn't take this bombastic hero's theme music. It was much more of a somber. Yeah, definitely had a more serious note. Whereas Magnificent Seven, you know, was this fun adventure tune, really. A feeling of like, the good guys are here. We're here to win. We're, we're here to save the day. I think Seventh Samurai, you know, had the more traditional warlike feel where it was somber. It was about going to war. It was about putting in your hard work and, and the seriousness that comes with it. Drums play a very important part in Japanese music. And there's kind of like a steady drum beat where you can almost say that it's, you know, the slow march to death or the slow march to battle where that kind of was always an important part, you know, the big tribal drums that are are so important in Japanese culture. And you can just imagine them in in your head being played in these villages uh, in the background off to the side of these scenes. And then they also kind of take a bit of a, I don't want to say like an operatic turn, but like there, it definitely has more of a classical feel, um, through the rest of the score that's that's very beautifully done but kind of leaves you with a bit of of a sense of uneasiness at times it's not a comforting score yeah i think the difference is here is that with the magnificent seven you know it's a tune that when the when the day is done you know you have this feeling of of winning and and being you know the hero whereas in seven samurai you know you have the going into battle beginning and then it transitions into this more feeling of a loss where you may have won the battle but there's so much that you've lost throughout this whole um you know adventure Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's true um i think you know kind of pivoting to some other other stuff i think it's it's pretty interesting that both of these movies are, are 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 socialist to the point of near communism in as far as their themes both of these movies deal with uh self-sustaining villages trying to protect themselves so you know they they grow their crops and they share them with each other. They, you know, they build each other's houses. They live together as families, even if, you know, some of them aren't directly related, even though in small villages, I'm sure most of them are somewhat related to most of each other. Um, 
And then when the time comes, they need to fight together to survive. So a lot of this is about, you know, controlling the means of production, which is a very socialist Marxist way of looking at the world. And they end up having to get outside help to hire using money. So you kind of have this bit of a capitalist influence to it. And it works to varying degrees of success. But, you know, the reality of it is you can hire people to do things, but at the end of the day, if you're not working together as a team, it's not really going to actually pan out. And Japan has some, you know, their, their politics are all over the place. They're, they're a fairly conservative country by nature, but this movie takes place in feudal Japan, which, you know, sort of every man for himself sort of style. Uh, and it really is about, keeping things together. Whereas in the Magnificent Seven, I think is interesting because, you know, it's a Hollywood Western, which is about as conservative as a genre as you can get. It's about, uh, you know, protecting yourself with your gun and, you know, you don't need to rely on anyone else but yourself to protect you and your family. It's about avenging, uh, your losses, things like that, which is a very, I mentality but this film you know despite having all these actors like Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen who you don't sort of expect to be in this sort of uh socialist style movie maybe they'd even realize it although it's hard to believe that Yul Brenner wouldn't have known considering he was such a big advocate of Seven Samurai of um not really something you'd expect as a as a genre um style for a western but I think it sort of works well with each other mm-hmm um that was just sort of like an interesting point that really brought to me i feel like some 12th grader could probably do a good you know history report or economics report or english report dissecting these movies about what it means as far as you know marxist versus capitalistic (laughs) politics and things like that i'm sure there's uh an interesting but probably very novice subtext that you could probably glean from all of this um one of the one of the interesting things is both of these movies rely so heavily on having an ensemble cast um and they all sort of rely on each other to as far as the the cowboys and the samurais competing with each other in order to work together um do you think there is any ways that they either did that similarly or different that you want to kind of talk about? Um, I think they were both pretty similar in that aspect where each character stood on their own, but when you looked at them in comparison with each other, they were always trying to, you know, kind of be the better one, the, the best one, maybe more so in Magnificent Seven than in Seven Samurai where they, they really did work as a team, I felt, but each individual character had their own reason for, for being there. Yeah, I think I think that's explained a little bit better in Seven Samurai, although I think in Magnificent Seven there are some, some ones that are explained why they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Seven Samurai, they're not actually samurai, they're called ronin, which means that they're masterless samurai because samurais usually uh, work for someone or work for the government or or not necessarily a police force, but that's sort of where they're employed. Ronin are usually 
on well, they're freelance. Armor. They're free. They're, they're freelance. Yeah, that's a good, that's a pretty good way to describe it. Um, and so they're some of them are Ronin for different reasons because they're either disillusioned or because they've lost their edge or because they were tired of killing that they've killed too many people. I think that's something that really kind of plays uh, a, maybe a bigger role in Seven Samurai is understanding what the cost of a life is. Uh, but then in the Magnificent Seven, you have uh, a gun fighter who no longer wants to shoot people anymore and so he has a bit of a shaky hand and it takes up most of the movie to kind of regain that edge to him um and and guys who are not necessarily regular fighters or guys who used to be highly paid bounty hunters but now no one wants to hire them anymore things like that so i think they they both kind of illustrate why their reasons of, of being you know for the most part lone wolves and that's part of the plot of the movie is how do these individuals also learn to come together, much yeah. like the village where that sort of mirrors itself. Yeah. yeah, they're almost their own little village, <laughs> kind of like an island of misfit toys. They all come together to, you know, create this this band that helps somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, like, the idea of in Seven Samurai, it was you know, Japanese samurai helping Japanese farmers, but in the Magnificent Seven, it was American cowboys helping Mexican farmers from Mexican bandits. Um, Is there anything that kind of sticks into your head? Did did that work for you? Did that feel racist at all? I mean, it's very Hollywood, right? It's the American idea that you're the best out there. They're the good guys. They're the ones that you go to when you have a problem. Whereas I think it's very traditional for, for Japanese to stick together and to, to what they know and they believe that if they go to someone else who is Japanese, they'll know how to help you and they'll, they'll be there for you. I think it's kind of, I don't want to say racist, but, you know, at the time, in, especially in Westerns, you know, the American cowboy was the end-all be-all. So to have these Mexicans who needed help, I guess it just makes sense to go across the border and get some American help, but... I, I think to be fair, because they actually, I believe they did film Magnificent Seven in Mexico, um, that a, a, a rule put in place for them to be allowed to film there was that the farmers had to be shown in good light and their clothes always had to be clean. So even in the battle scenes, the, you know, they've got <laughs> nice white clean clothes, which is kind of funny. Um, but I think, that kind of goes a long way of making the film not seem like a little racist because, you know, these Mexicans, they made it clear that these villagers, farmers, they made it very clear that they work with their hands. They work farming and feeding each other and educating each other. And then there's this great, you know, little fiesta scene where you really feel the sense of community and that they all love and care for each other. And it never seemed like they were a bit of a joke that, yeah, I didn't find any of it stereotypical. No, I I think they did a really good job with that other than, you know, Eli Wallach's terrible (laughs) Spanish (laughs) accent. Um, But I think that was allowed to happen because you could see that the Mexican farmers were just regular people. Um, and so much so that, you, you know, most of the Magnificent Seven, you almost get the sense that they want to stay there. Yeah. Um, one of them does end up staying there, the youngest 
man who really kind of falls in love with their their lifestyle but it also gets revealed that he was a farmer boy as well so he kind of understands their their style of living um but yeah it didn't it didn't seem like there was any sort of uh improperness to it where you you almost you almost did feel like the magnificent seven were guests that they were there uh, because they are invited to be there, not that they are kind of like these invading Americans. Yeah. Um, where I think in maybe in lesser hands, the movie could have very easily veered towards that. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially with like some of the other, you know, Western movies, whether it's something like The Treasure of Sierra Madre, um, where, you know, the Mexicans all seem like these scummy people and things like that when they're not really Mexicans, they're just Americans doing terrible Mexican accents, Spanish accents and things like that. So I think they do a pretty good job of being respectful of the culture and really showing uh, what they're protecting, what their, what their purpose is. So those are, those are our thoughts on these two movies. You know, both of them I really highly recommend. Uh, I know the point of this isn't to say which one is better or not, but was there one that you preferred between the two? Um, surprisingly enough, I actually prefer Seven Samurai. I say surprisingly enough because any movie over two hours long is too long for me. So to say that a three and a half hour movie uh, was preferred over a two hour movie is kind of shocking, but I actually did prefer Seven Samurai. I, I absolutely agree. I'm now kind of on a Kurosawa kick where I want to watch all of his movies. I find his style of direction very interesting. Uh, the first one I watched was Rashomon. And while I wasn't crazy about it, I still thought it had a unique enough directorial touch. And Shiro Mufune, who's also in that movie, gave a really interesting performance, even if I didn't think it fully worked, um, was captivating enough we're now after watching seven samurai and being a much better version much better movie than rashomon i'm i'm just now fully addicted to it and i think he has a really interesting take on the way he directs especially the the final battle scene in the seven samurai i thought was just i think it really underscored i've mentioned this a few times the idea of the cost of a life where the further along this fight got the muddier it got the rainier Mm -hmm. it got dirtier everyone was no like the idea of no one gets out of a fight clean even if you win i think was a really good way of showing it and you know there were times where it was kind of hard to see the action not because of the you know the quick cuts which is very famous in hollywood movies more so new but because everything was just so dirty where you couldn't really follow what was going on but because of that i still think kurosawa's direction in his camera was was placed in the right way to really appreciate what was going on and understand the the sort of mayhem that was going on um and there was just so many you know horses going back and forth and, and people fighting where it kind of got a little confusing at times but you still kind of understood what was going on but in the sense let me back that up. It's in the sense of that you understand that war is a confusing place. It's gritty and chaotic, and I feel like it's what his shots were as well. Yeah, and not, and it, it was done so purposefully. It wasn't mm-hmm. done so because, well, it's easier if the audience doesn't understand going on because you can either hide mistakes or or whatever it is, or just be impressed by the fact that there's horses riding through and people fighting on the ground and things like that. It was all done very purposefully. Um, 
so that sort of is something I really it, it had it, even though both movies ended with lots of people dying I think the Seven Samurai had a more somber ending yeah. between the two whereas Magnificent Seven even though a bunch of people died it was a little more hopeful where it was like we're going to mourn the people we lost but at the end of the day we still came out on top we accomplished our mission and it almost seemed a bit more hopeful a little bit. I mean, both movies end very similarly, mm-hmm. where they say that they actually didn't win. The samurai didn't win. The villagers won. And on, on the flip side, they said that the gunslingers didn't win. It was the farmers who won. And I think that's just to say that when you're fighting somebody else's battle, even if you win, you know, you move on to the next one. It's not really a win for you because nothing's really changed for you. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the perfect conclusion to all this. Um, so thank you so much for listening. This is the first episode of Make Remake. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out liveandlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at DGAPA. Uh, and if you either agree or disagree with the things that we were saying, or if you want to just let me know which one of the two you preferred, if you've seen them, uh, shoot me an email, dakota at liveandlimbo.com, and feel free to discuss what you thought about these movies. Um, I ne- I haven't really had of any interest in seeing the newest Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt, uh, but I almost feel like I want to to watch it just to kind of compare it to these two and see (laughs) how does it stand up and maybe take the same notes that we were just talking about here and apply it to that other one. Be an interesting experiment, maybe. Maybe there'll be uh, bonus content (laughs) for a future episode where I'll revisit. Remake, remake again. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, I'm pretty sure they actually did a sequel to The Magnificent Seven. Where I think they only had like one of the cast members Mm -hmm. return to that. So you know how good that was. (laughs) Well, mind you, like over half of them died in the movie. It's true. Um, (laughs) But yeah. Um, so thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, and I'll be doing more of these make remakes in the future with some different ones. So if you have any suggestions of maybe what you want to see, include that, uh, when you're reaching out. Thank you so much. Bye. Mm-hmm.